0: Welcome to episode 106 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Wine Club. Please visit the slash TLS to learn more. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stephen Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about daily life i feel we can all learn so much from each other and i intend to search out people and their stories which will teach us all a little about other people's lives today's guest is mark newcomb a ski patroller exome mountain guide true jackson hole native and currently serving our community as a county commissioner my discussion with mark covers how his family arrived here in jackson hole and fast forward why he decided to become involved as a community leader During Mark's life, he had the opportunity to learn from some early outdoor pioneers. The life skills and lessons Mark absorbed from them has helped him live a balanced life. Mark shares with us his deep passion to be in the outdoors while hiking, climbing mountains, and skiing. Mark, thank you for joining me today at the Jackson Hole Connection. Wonderful to see you via Zoom and look forward to getting to know you uh, so much more um, over the course of this interview. Thank you. Well, thank you
1: very much. Thank you very much for um, having me on as an interviewee. It's an honor. You've had some great folks on the podcast. I hope it's gaining a lot of traction out there. It's a great podcast. And in uh, the few that I listened to, I learned a ton. I think it's a quality product. So thank you for having me. And let's see if I can meet the standard.
0: Well, I I know you will. We all have something to contribute to each other. And you growing up here in Jackson, I'm interested to hear your story. We were just talking in the pre-show and you did grow up here and you were raised by uh, parents here in Jackson and, and your father was part of Exum Mountain Guides for a long time. So let's start with your connection. How did your family end up here in Jackson Hole? And what was it like growing up in a mountain climbing family?
1: Sure. Um, I should probably strive for brevity here because it's a it's a long and in-depth and and rich story. But I think in short, my father uh, has a pretty adventuresome spirit. My his his father, my grandfather did as well. But my father grew up in Southern California. And uh, even back in the fifties, started to get the feeling that it was getting too crowded, and okay. um, he he was drafted and served, and then went to college and completed two years before dropping out. And my grandfather was uh, pretty committed to academics and had studied at Caltech and was operating a citrus propagation. He he grew lemon rootstock for all the lemon orchards around Southern California at the time. But uh, my father somehow was a little too restless to uh, stick with that business and to stick with college. And so my grandfather said, you know, I know someone out in Jackson who is who is connected somehow to the Jenny Lake Lodge. So if you need something to do, why don't you go out there and, um, and at least get a job For the summer. So my father hitchhiked out to Jackson and this was probably in 52 or 54 and um, spent a summer working at the Jenny Lake Lodge. And then I think he stayed on as the winter caretaker for the Jenny Lake Lodge. And he has told me about ice skating out on Jenny Lake And he was all alone out up there in the middle of the winter. And so he would drag a piece of plywood behind him in case the ice broke when he was ice skating out on Jenny Lake in (laughs) early winter. And uh, that would allow him to to get out on his own. So that's um, when he started to come out to Jackson and uh, he eventually got to know people like Frank Ewing and uh and Glenn Exum and the the lifestyle fit his restless spirit and uh he he's a hard worker so he was um sometimes guiding trips for Exum during the day and then coming off the mountain and taking a river trip or two for Frank Ewing in the evening and at the same time becoming more connected to the climbing community so that that sort of uh planted his roots here. Uh, and then my, my mom came out from Pennsylvania, and she had completed college, and she had a degree in, in English and a minor in art. And she first, I think, stopped in Laramie. And I, I would think it's safe to say that for the time, she had a pretty adventuresome spirit as well, you know, the, uh, to, to, to be a woman and to, to hit the road and travel like that. She's the oldest of five, and I think was pretty ready to get out of the house and get away from taking care of her her two younger brothers and two younger sisters, and uh, and she ended up in Laramie and, and made some friends there. And I think uh, was wondering what to do next. And they led her up to Jackson, and she she worked at the old wagon wheel restaurant, waiting tables and and uh, doing some odd jobs like that for a while. And um and and met my dad. And I don't know exactly when. And I to be honest, don't know exactly the details, but I think there was a lot of that uh, stuff that couples go through nowadays where, you know, he took her out skiing and, and she, um, you know, she stepped up and said she had a great time and maybe she did or maybe she didn't. I know she was a strong hiker in the day and I think they probably went on some hikes and whatnot together, but um, they did get married and my father at that point just fully committed to working hard for the family and he, in contrast to a lot of us today who seem to want to have it all, he put aside his his dreams of of being a prominent mountaineer in, and uh, going to the Himalaya to do first ascents along with a lot of his climbing partners and friends, and just focused on uh, making a home for the family. and And I look back on that, and I'm I'm very impressed with what he did for basically 20 years, you know, he, he gave up having to go have a powder day and ski powder whenever the snow was good. And he gave up going to pursue his own climbing ambitions and he just put his head down and worked hard. So uh, quite a role model along that lines. Uh, uh, My mom has been a fantastic um, mother. She's got an amazing artistic bent and is very creative and always wanted to to, um, pursue that but she at the same time also had to take care of myself and my two sisters. Uh, my father was gone a lot as a mountain guide and then eventually he was traveling around the west teaching avalanche classes so she had her hands full and um, probably never got to pursue her dream as to be an artist to the fullest extent possible and, um, and I think those have been uh, important and powerful lessons for me because I too have wanted to live the dream, and probably for uh, a good part of my life, and to a greater degree than maybe I deserved, I did live the dream, and I traveled the world, and and even found myself getting paid to travel the world, and and reached a point where I could I could suggest to my sponsor and benefactor that you know here's a peak that we might want to go explore and look at, and they would fund a trip to do that. And as I uh, as I transitioned to a more of a family man, I recognized that um, the the sacrifice entailed in trying to commit to both having a family and commit to those personal goals is immense, and that uh, it takes a special individual to to pull both of those off. and And I, I think I've decided to really stick with for many reasons, I've decided to stick with the focus on the family at this point and just be grateful that I had um, uh, a 10 or 15 year run of really amazing, great adventures around the world. So here I am today. And uh, I I owe so, so much to to both my mother and father that I just, I can't say enough about them.
0: What a fabulous story and a heartfelt story. And Thank you for, for sharing that detail. I'm interested to learn so much more about who you are and more more about that climbing thread in, in your life as well and, and what that taught you. How do you feel with the, the work ethic that you learned from your father and that you experienced being in, in the world of climbing that has helped you survive and thrive here in, in Jackson Hole?
1: I, I think that is interesting because... It's easy for me to, to kind of say, well, you know, I'm just another ski bum or climbing bum, but um, maybe it is my, my mother and father's work ethic that I strived to emulate that sort of set me apart just a little bit. And so I think an example of that might be that um, when I made that final choice and it, it wasn't a decisive One day I woke up and decided to pursue an outdoor professional career. It kind of evolved in a way that we can get into later. But after I had gone through that process and made the decision, uh, I still had student debts to pay off. And I had some, you know, some commitments that I needed to follow through on and felt obligated to follow through on. So I couldn't just hit the road and climb and ski to my heart's delight and I always had to work and have some sort of income coming in. So, you know, I worked as a ski patrol during the winter, and then I would transition to working construction during the off-season. And at the same time, I did want to pursue my climbing and skiing ambitions. So there were many weekends when I had worked a five-day week and then would uh, uh, prepare after work on Friday and wake up at 1 a.m., to uh, launch a trip up into the Tetons to go climbing and skiing and, um, you know, kind of pull that off for a Saturday and Sunday and then come back to work for another five days. During the time I was working at the same time, I would try and train in the evening after working. So it was a pretty all-in commitment that, uh, went a little bit beyond just kind of hanging out and having fun and, uh, you know, for that sort of commitment, there was not a lot of partying that went on. Um, you know, I certainly had a few late nights and good times with a couple friends, Steve Stephen Koch and Tom Turiano. But uh it, it was a it was a pretty real commitment that um bordered on the life of a of a you know an athlete more than a, a kind of a ski bum climbing bum and um trying to maintain some uh, some respectable, you know, commitment to work to at the same time to keep those bills paid.
0: Now, I think it's interesting how you mentioned that you made decisions to not be the partier, you were committed to being an athlete. And, you know, I, I feel that in a lot of times during our lives, there are situations that present themselves to us and we can either look at it as giving something up or gaining something on the other side. And it sounds like you gained a lot, a lot more than what you ever sacrificed because look at the experiences that you have and that you can share with people.
1: Yeah. I think I'm fortunate in a way that like, I, I really enjoy hanging out with people and I've, there's just a lot of great people and great mentors everywhere in Jackson and in this area uh, but you know, on ski patrol, it was, um, it was not uncommon to get done with the day. And, um, if it was a big day and you had done a lot of avalanche control and you'd taken a few wrecks off the hill, uh, you know, you were ready to kind of kick back and have a few. And back then we had something called the boom, boom room, um, you know, basically the ski patrol locker room. And there was a keg there and not, a you know, typically a, a bottle or two of whiskey or crown Royal. And, and guys would, um, guys and gals would would hang out and they would have a few and, and um, sing some songs and, and get pretty rowdy. And it was fun to hang out there. And, and um, it was a great chance to just kind of rehash the day. And often you could learn a lot. But I knew if I did that, I was not going to be performing at the level that I wanted to perform to, to get up in the Tetons and um, do the kind of stuff that I wanted to do up there. So mm-hmm. yeah, I had to give something up. And um, I, I think I have the personality type that probably made it a little easier to let go of that because I, I don't mind solitude. In fact, sometimes I need solitude and, and um, I need to be on my own. And uh, uh, I was just so happy to be in the mountains. There's no other word to describe it. I don't... When I was young, the, the feeling of elation of being up high, moving efficiently through the mountains, exploring new terrain... Uh, was just a high that I could never really replicate anywhere else. And so it, it drew me away from scenes that might have um, you know, gotten me in trouble and kept me from, from reaching those
0: goals. Who gave you the opportunity to experience life in the mountains? Was that, was that your father, your mother, or some friends around here? Because it sounds like your dad worked a lot. He did work a lot,
1: but he certainly gave me the foundation for it. I had, a, I had an inner drive to climb and explore, but then I was probably not as bold as, uh, you know, like there, I, I guess I set a pretty high standard only because I've lived around a high standard. So, you know, when I was young, Yvonne Shenard was here a lot. He still is here a lot, but, he, you know, he, he is one of the icons of hard man, you know, climbing and mountaineering. And I grew up around others like Kim Schmitz and Chuck Pratt, uh, as well as the climbing rangers like uh, Rennie Jackson and Ron Matus was a climbing ranger before he became an XM guide, and they were just really, really good climbers and tremendous. And as well, I you know I was around the you know XM guides like like Willie Unsold and Tom Hornbein and um, Barry Corbett were some of the most significant prominent mountaineers of their time and they were on expeditions to Everest like the 1963 Everest expedition that made the first American ascent of Everest. And so those guys were the ones that I looked up to and when I measure myself against them, I'm far from being anywhere in their league but I still, I had an adventure, some spirit. I loved to climb. And, uh, and my dad gave me an opportunity by um, typically taking me out with a group that he was instructing or a group that he was guiding and having me tag along. And I can still remember to this day, I was probably seven and he took me to a basic climbing class. And in the basic climbing class, you learn some knots and you learn how to coil a rope and you learn how to move through tricky terrain with rope coils. And I remember the practice uh, walk up to the climbing rocks where you're supposed to carry a coil of ropes as you would up on the Grand Teton so that you can um, support the person behind you if they need a little support with the rope. And I just had this bundle rat's nest of rope in my arms that i basically just dumped at my dad's feet and said i don't know what to do with this and uh uh, that was you know kind of the start of of my technical roped climbing but um there was another fun experience too i climbed a lot of trees did a lot of tree climbing i grew up on heck of a hill down Fall Creek Road, and uh, there were these great lodgepole and and Douglas fir trees everywhere. The neighbors, for the most part, in those days didn't mind uh, myself, didn't mind the other neighborhood kids running around on their property. There were, there was a couple property owners who were particular about their private property, but we would explore the woods for trees to climb and uh, there was a tree on a neighbor's property just across from my house that had a branch up pretty high and I managed to shimmy up to that branch and get onto that branch and above that just out of my reach was another branch and if I continued to try and shimmy up to that branch and fallen at that point I would have taken a pretty good fall you know maybe it was 12 or 15 feet it seemed probably like 30 feet to me in those days and my dad happened to get back from work, pulled up in his 1959 Ford truck and saw me teetering on my tiptoes, wondering if I could reach that next branch. And uh, instead of jumping out of the truck and saying, boy, you better get down, he pulled out a rope and a sling and and a carabiner and said, come on down and, and let's see if, if uh, we can give you a belay and so he tied the rope around my waist and he gave me the sling and the carabiner and he said now climb up there again to that branch and girth hitch the sling and he showed me how to girth hitch it around the branch and clip the rope through the carabiner and I'll give you a belay and then if you go for that next branch and fall you at least won't hit the ground and so I went up there and climbed up into that next branch and uh, got on up the tree and that was my first lead climb was climbing a tree with with a rope tied around my waist just like in the good old days so he was supportive of my inclinations to adventure and um and at a certain point um you know i kind of cut the cord and started out on my own i had a, a couple friends one in particular sam lightner jr he moved here when he was probably eight or nine and um, we met in Wilson School, uh, became friends and he took a real interest in climbing and my dad was the one that took the both of us, the two of us out climbing for the first time and Sam really picked it up quickly and quickly demonstrated that he had an innate ability to climb and was a very strong climber and so, you know, we kind of cut our teeth with lead climbing in the Tetons and this was back in the day when There were not a lot of bolted sport climbs. There were certainly no climbing gyms. And you know, you basically went out with the ethic of you better not fall. I mean, we were placing climbing gear, but it was often marginal as it is when you're learning. And the belays were often marginal. And and we managed to survive, I think by probably because we had sort of honed some level of judgment by climbing trees a lot. You know, knowing when we should try something and when we shouldn't, we we were able to apply that to the actual rock and avoid a really bad spill on the rock. So Sam Lightner Jr. was a really important climbing partner, and he went on to lead a very illustrious climbing career and has authored some interesting books and developed a whole bunch of climbing in. Uh, Thailand of all places that's uh, turned into some of the most dramatic limestone rock climbing that you can find anywhere in the world. So he lives over in Lander. Um, I touch base with him every now and then, but uh, that was how we got kind of got started. And my father was pretty instrumental in that.
0: It sounds like your dad was, saw that adventure inside of you and was willing to help you uh, build that and bring it out in you. And that's awesome.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was what I loved about guiding to sort of move on to the guiding phase of my life. Um, Having that experience showed me how valuable it is to, to look at every person that you meet, every person that you take out climbing and to recognize their potential rather than to recognize, rather than to see right away their limitations. You certainly need to identify some of the limitations they have, but to, to try and, um, Speak, them in a way, speak to them in a way and give them the right instruction and take the right approach that would allow them to unleash their potential. And, and I just think that that's a wonderful thing to do, whether you're guiding, whether you're instructing someone else in anything in that, like art or, or school. I I taught avalanche classes for a little while. and I always tried to remember what approach my father had taken with me, which was not to rein me in, but to
0: really try and support my ambitions and my abilities. Could you speak a little bit more to what you just made a note about looking at people's potential versus limitations? And maybe there's a a story that you have where somebody came to you and they felt they had limitations, but you saw their potential and you were able to help them identify that potential and, and, help them be successful in, in the experience that you were providing to them?
1: I have a few stories from guiding experiences that convey that to some extent. There were uh, there was a great group of four women, all local, that signed up with Exum to climb the Grand Queton. And they had an instructor for um, the, the typical routine with Exum is that someone who has never really climbed before or who doesn't have very much experience will sign up and they take two days of school. The first day is, um, it might be called level one now. We used to call it basic school, but basic sounds basic. So they take a level one class, which starts with the basic skills, and then they would take a level two class. And by the level two class, you are climbing essentially nearly vertical rock and you are rappelling over a very long Uh, overhanging rappel in preparation for climbing the Grand Teton. Through the two days of those classes, you evaluate the clients and assess their abilities, and that assessment allows a guide to make some judgment as to how fit they are for climbing the Grand Teton, uh, what route would be appropriate for them, whether they should tackle a harder route like the Exum Ridge, um, which still isn't super hard, but it's a longer, more committing route or whether it would be best if they stuck with what's considered the easiest route up the Grand Teton, the Owen Spalding route. And um, this group of women had been through the classes and the guide's assessment was that uh, they simply should not climb the Exum Ridge, that if they made it up the Grand Teton at all, it would only be up the Owen Spalding route. Uh, wonderful group. Of really excited women and we hiked up to the saddle together and uh, I just had a really good vibe and they hiked well Um, they had a great synergy among them uh, great communication very supportive and uh, so the next day I took them up the Exxon Ridge and we made it and uh, one of them was a little slow but again because of the synergy among the group because of the vibe they supported her and we, uh, we got it done. And and they were just absolutely thrilled because they had been told, well, if you make it up to Grand Teton at all, it'll be by the Owen Spaulding route. And uh, again, they had sort of been given a bit more of a pessimistic um, outlook. And uh, and I think for me, somehow, I, I really don't know what it was. I just, uh, uh, I seem to recognize that, um, it was well within our risk parameters to try the
0: Exum Ridge, and, and we did, and we made it. Congratulations, and to that group of women for overcoming any challenges that they might have had.
1: They were, they were awesome. They were really fun and, and funny and, uh,
0: and just had a, a great spirit. I'll be right back with Mark after this quick message from the show's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jackson Hole Wine Club, the newest and most exciting club in Jackson Hole. We accept everyone as members who are of age and happy to pay no application to qualify. Wondering what the Jackson Hole Wine Club has to offer? Take a look at the Hole Wine Each week we send out a Kevin McNamara hand selected special that only you can find at the Jackson Hole Wine Club site. Please visit the Jacksonhole Connection com Slash TLS to learn a whole lot more. Now being a a guide for so many years. And you mentioned growing up here, you mentioned the ski bum, mountain bum, um, lifestyle. And do you feel that that still exists? And if it does, what's the difference between when maybe when your dad got here, when you were growing up here and what that looks like now? Yeah. Right. Another big topic. (laughs) I, I, Yeah.
1: There absolutely. There are still, uh, absolutely, there's still a, a ski bum and climbing bum uh, community and ethos. And it's just such a broad range. And it can have a really negative connotation. It can at the same time, it's no different than, uh, you know, people just pursuing a passion. It could be, it could easily be someone who is, is taking a gap year, they're young and they they just aren't sure where they're going next they've had a taste of the outdoors and they want to spend a full year committing to it and um and at the same at the same time a climbing bum can also be someone who is is living it sleeping it breathing it and uh is is going to be a climbing bum when they're 65 just as much as when they were 25 and um you know sometimes they end up running companies like Patagonia and sometimes they end up um um, really struggling later in life, you know, maybe being perfectly happy, but ailing physically and, and not really having great options on what else to do. So it does exist. It's here. What's the difference between now and then? You know, what's the difference between now when we have a county population of 23, 25,000, and uh, it's, it's an extremely well-known community um, that has become a, a getaway for folks with a lot of means and wealth versus the 50s when there were just over 2,000 people here and most roads were unpaved and um, while it was a hard place to live, you could you could scrap by and, um, and, and make it work. You know it, 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 people say this all the time. Jim Rooks sure reminded us us of it in his podcast. Um, it's never been easy. You know, back when there was basically nothing to do here in winter, there weren't a lot of ways to make money. So you you always had to struggle and really work hard to find that niche and find a way to stay here year round if that's what you were inclined to do. But the big difference is that back then, if you were bold and if you had a little vision, you could start a a big new business. You could pioneer a whitewater rafting trip like Charlie Sands, like, uh, like the Ewings, like the Barkers, you could, um, you know, you could scrap together army surplus and start floating people down the snake river. You could, you could, um, pull together some ropes and some basic climbing gear and call yourself a mountain guide service. And, uh, and, and start taking people up the Grand Teton. You know, that was a little earlier back in, in the 30s with Paul Petzold and Glenn Exum, but there was just a lot more opportunity for boldness and, and vision. And um, it's uh, I, I still firmly believe that there are a lot of people, men and women, who just have a hard time sitting down and working in an office, and they need some professional outlet to find meaning and to, to have a fulfilling career. And those opportunities are more and more limited. Um, they really are. There certainly are guiding opportunities out there, but you know, Exim Exum has the same number of slots to take people up the Grand Teton now as they did back in the 50s. And it's not like that's a, a, a vastly growing field um, and offering a whole lot more job opportunities. That that's the big difference. You know, if, if you're one of those people that just cannot sit still and yet you're looking for meaning in your life and something fulfilling as well as a way to earn a little bit of a living, there were a lot more, you know, the percentage of jobs in the 50s that allowed for someone like that to to work meaning, meaningfully was a lot higher than it is now. I, I just feel like if you look at all the jobs out there now, a much smaller slice of them, are available for that type of restless spirit. And I'm concerned about that. You know, I'm concerned about it. I lived through it and I'm transitioning and I'm trying to, you know, trying in myself to see if I can settle into a more office type job. Um, I survived graduate school, you know, to get a master's in economics. But even then, you're continually kind of changing and transitioning. And, And I tell you, the the person who can sit down and work as an accountant for even twenty years, let alone forty years i I just really admire and and um and don't know what kind of mindset and person that can be because it's sure not me and I don't see it in my family and i'm I'm not sure I see it in my kids and I wonder if if there are going to be opportunities for for folks like that. Uh, in in the coming future but um, that that I I don't know that's a little bit wandering explanation and and examination of then versus now but um, I I do feel like that in the 50s and 60s and even the early 70s if you didn't mind working really hard physically you know you could work construction you could guide white water and you could guide in the mountains and um, and make a decent living of it and I, I think I fear that's going away.
0: Is is that part of it going away because of the opportunities? But also, is any of it going away due to the cost of living out here?
1: Yeah, that's significant. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, absolutely. So, the re the only reason I'm here is because, well, and um, probably this is the only place we'll verge into politics. But you know, by zoning in a way that probably has been very important to protect the larger health and welfare of the community, we have eliminated many of the opportunities that might that once were there for people like that to live here and here's the example when my father went to finally settle down and find property here up on heck of a the hill there were five acre lots for sale but he and a few other river guides got together he got together with um with Husser and who was a river guide, and Pat McCoy, who was a river guide, and um, uh, what's his name? It's escaping me right now, but anyway, the four of them bought one of these five-acre lots, and they split it into one-and-a-quarter-acre lots, and each of them could afford the one-and-a-quarter-acre lot, but no one of them could have afforded the five-acre lot. You can't do that now, but that's really the only reason why I'm here, so I grew up on heck of a hill on a one-and-a-quarter-acre lot surrounded by five-acre lots, Um, which eventually were subdivided just before the county changed the zoning in 1978 to um, preclude any lot under under three acres. So it is much harder to find a niche here now to buy property to live here. And I know the community in many ways is making an effort to create sort of the modern kind of housing, which is going to be smaller multifamily housing that would allow Um, someone to live here but as we know the demand is much greater than the supply and it's it's not an easy um, it's not an easy thing to to do at a scale that would accommodate everybody with the ambition to stay here.
0: Thank you for sharing um, that that perspective and and where we stand as a as a community Um, and I've been up there on heck of a hill I used to go help a friend of mine link out. Oh sure yeah Absolutely. And, uh, we can talk about Link after the show, but there, there, yeah, yeah.
1: There's another of the, the heroes that we don't always recognize in the community, but an Olympic caliber kayaker.
0: Yeah, s- such an amazing person and so grounded, and she could just look into your soul and talk to you and make you feel better. Yeah, talking yep. to Link, um, such a grounded and special friend. Special friend for sure. I, Mark, I am interested to know. From some of these iconic climbing guides that you met and who helped influence you in in your life, your father included in in adding into that, you know, Glenn Exum and some of the rafting guides that you you met as well, who probably were pretty brave in, in what they did. What are some, a few key takeaways that you learned from them about life that you'd like to share with others that, that have helped you work through challenging times and and help you push through when 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 that was needed
1: oh boy, um, that is a tough question because um, I, I think I would say you know cl- the climbing community is not the community that you look at for guidance on stable families and stable relationships, and uh, models of healthy living, you know, there's a self-destructive thread in that community that is, I don't know if it is something that has to be there because of the nature of climbing, and especially climbing at a high alpine level, climbing at a high level in the alpine realm, which is is certainly fraught with danger and, and high consequences of a bad outcome. But um, the people that I really admired were often incredibly well-rounded people. And that seemed to be what pulled them through and set them apart from the climbers that um, ultimately struggled to find something else to do with their lives. And um, as, they, as their physical ability diminished and they weren't able to pull off the kind of feats that sustained them in their younger lives, climbers needed something else. And so some of the Jenny Lake Rangers that I admired were also very intellectual and um, able to transition to writing books. Um, Some were math professors. Some of the other climbers that I looked up to just had um, you know some were at, on the one hand incredibly good climbers, and on the other hand Wyoming state chess champions and huh. uh, and they could transition to computer programming or something like that. Um, they had this mad passion for the outdoors and adventure, but at the same time they had an ability to hunker down and um, and write books or computer programs and I think that 's something that I really tried to. I tried to emulate. And so I, I owe, I, at one point, you know, I I made a commitment to finish college and had that in my back pocket, even as I decided to venture around the world and pursue my own career in the mountains. But then later in life, recognized that um, that might not be enough and, and did need to transition and go back to graduate school. And it was not easy. It was not easy at all for a number of reasons. But I think it's important to recognize the value in being well-rounded and it could go vice versa too, you know, for folks who have pursued a very academic track and career and um, a career that has lent itself to being somewhat sedentary. I think it's important at the same time to, to maintain a, a healthy well-roundedness and, and remember to have an active side to your lifestyle too
0: well said yeah we we i think so much of society loses that active style lifestyle the active side and and just being outdoors yeah
1: you know we live in a bubble here Uh, our view here in jackson is skewed but uh it, it you know you don't have to spend much time in so many other cities across the u.s to recognize the the imbalance that i think is out there in the in The nation,
0: yeah. I have some friends in other cities, and one of my friends in Atlanta. Um, he gets out there; he goes out and takes walks along the river or something in nature, something outside. Yeah.
1: I, well, it's amazing. I'll tell you a pretty good story. You know, I had a lot of I had clients from all different parts of the country, and the clients that were almost always consistently in the best shape, just for playing hiking up into the mountains, were the ones from New York City. Who didn't own a car and for the most part walked and took the subway everywhere they went. And I would say, well, do you train? Well, no, I just have to walk to work every day and up a flight of stairs or three or four. And um, and that's what did it for him. Mm-hmm.
0: I've I've heard that for sure. Yeah, definitely heard that. Any last words of wisdom coming from a former climbing guide, now county commissioner, um, <laughs> masters of did you say economics?
1: I did get a master's in economics. I'm a far worse economist than I ever was a climber, but I, I hang that out there now to try and, you know, as a conversation starter or, or ender often as soon as somebody really starts talking economics with me. But no, economics is a, is an incredibly value, valuable tool for setting a framework to approach, you know, things around the world, whether it's climate change or whether it is how to um, – help the community in other ways. It, it's a really important tool. So I'm glad I got the degree. What, what words of wisdom? You know, I, I don't know that I have anything that's not cliche. It's, it's so hard to say pursue your passions, but all of us at some time or another, if not our entire lives, face constraints on fully pursuing our passions. And I think that's what I recognized in my parents. You know, My dad was on the first ascent of a very significant route on uh, Denali, the East Buttress, and pulled that off, and was certainly in a place to um, become a Himalayan mountaineer and and um, roam the world. But he chose to raise a family, and once he had that commitment and that financial commitment, he put his head down and worked hard. And it was much much later in life when he finally got a chance to go trekking around the Himalaya. And um, you know, once us kids were fully in college, and it was clear that uh, we were gonna do okay. We were going to have some student debt, but we, we could pay it off that, um, you know, he started to get back and probably do the things that for um, 30 years he, he had to put aside. So keep your passions, think about your passions, recognize that you might not always get to pursue them fully, but that if you hold on to them, put your head down, work hard for some significant amount of time, you will get a chance again to to pull them out and, and go after it. But, um, it's, uh, it's one thing to say
0: it. It's another thing to live it. Yeah. It takes a lot of heart to, to make those decisions and thank you for sharing. I appreciate your time today, Mark. This has been wonderful.
1: Well, and I really appreciate being on the podcast and I, I do want to recognize that you and and your business really set a great standard, uh, for the community. I've always, um, just the, the service has been remarkable. And so, um, it's been an honor and I've seen you so much in the community and and always thought, wow, there goes, you know, Stefan Abrams and that guy um, has, has clearly has something going on that he's put a lot of effort into too. So uh, certainly you have your admirers and um, I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate it. Well, it's been awesome. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. To learn more about Mark and his life here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, please visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 106. Many thanks to everybody who helps me keep the podcast going each week. My editor and marketing director, Michael Morey, musical director, Luke Taylor, my wife, Laura, and those wild boys that I mentioned each week, William and Lewis. Take care, everybody. And I really look forward to seeing you here next week for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.